I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I'm Guy Barter and welcome to Gardening with the RHS. We're going to start today's show in the Rose Garden at Wisley. My name's Emma Allen, I'm one of the garden managers here, responsible for formal and decorative display. Later in the show we'll look at the history of this plant, as well as its underappreciated fawny side. And talking of the misunderstood, we'll profile some other malign things in the garden, weeds and parasitoid wasps. But first, let's get a tour of the roses with Emma. So we're currently sitting in the Bowesline Rose Garden, which is a large rose garden at Wisley. Got over four and a half thousand roses in here, but they're complemented with lots of herbaceous perennials and shrubs as well. So there's a real mix of interest in here. Two of my favourite roses, one's called Fior Eyes Only, and this has a lovely, starts out in a kind of like peachy pink colour and then fades to a paler pink and it's got a lovely darker eye in the centre so you get all these different colours it's a single rose and you get all these different colours all over the roses they're all different ages at the same time I particularly like that one it's not scented though, that's the only drawback but it is beautiful and it has a very close cousin which is called Rose That Eyes For You and that one, it almost looks like a peony flower. That's like a pale mauve and slightly fuller petals. And it's always got a peony quality when it emerges. Again, it doesn't smell, but they're just visually stunning. And they keep flowering all summer long. They repeat flowers. So, you know, you get a lot for your money there if you buy those roses. I think people love roses and are fascinated by them just because of the sheer variety of colour and form, whether that's, you know, got a large shrub rose or hybrid tea or the smaller patio roses or a climbing rose. There's great variety in form and then the colour and form of the flower, so you get a single or a double, but also then the scent. I think everybody loves a good smelly rose and certainly when visitors are walking through the rose garden when it's in full bloom they're not only captured by the extent of that flower power but also it's the scent that people are attracted to and everybody pretty much sniffs every rose that they walk past. So Care for Roses really starts in January, February time when we prune them so depending on the rose, depending on the pruning technique but you can be quite vicious, I suppose, with roses than people first anticipate. I remember working with a group, with a volunteer group in a previous job and showing them how I pruned a rose and they were, they were quite stunned. And then when they saw the effect in summer, they were like, oh, 
didn't know that they would come back so well. So they are really vigorous plants. Different roses have slightly different pruning techniques, so I'd advise looking on the RHS website, which will tell you the difference between your floribunda pruning or your hybrid tea or your shrub rose. So that's the first point. And then really once you've done that, give them a good organic mulch, so give them a good feed which will help with flowering in summer, really. It will also help keep the weeds down around the rose, too. Try not to mulch right up to the base of the rose because that might start rotting it off a bit. So don't volcano mulch, as we call it. And then after that, really, you just let them come into their own and do their thing into summer. You might want to scatter down some additional feed, possibly some granular feed, something like an osmocote, maybe. And then that's it if it's a new rose you would water it in but they're really quite drought resistant so if you have a dry summer they tend to be all right they might drop a few leaves but they're really not that bad so once they've been in for a year I wouldn't worry too much about watering them through the summer we certainly don't water our roses here unless they're new and then the other big job particularly when you've got four and a half thousand roses is the deadheading so that starts after the first flush usually kind of mid to late June and then we start deadheading, which is a gargantuan task. We normally have three big hits of deadheading here over summer. If you're planting roses out in a border, I think my top tip would be to give them some space between them. We have big groups planted together, but in between the big groups, we've got large swathes of herbaceous perennials and shrubs. So it's not a complete monoculture of roses. That way we get more variety of interest throughout the summer so when we're in between the rose flushes we've got the herbaceous perennials flowering as well but it also means we get more airflow around the roses and that will help with particularly with diseases I think the more airflow you have around the plant the better it is that would be my top tip for that don't just plant them in a group together with nothing else and maybe I definitely in the past tried using things like lavender underneath or maybe an apita something that's quite scented and i believe that's meant to put off certain pests as well so give that a try and of course they're a lovely cut flower so i think just as when you're deadheading just make sure when you cut down you cut to a nice bud so you're not going to leave a brown stem dying above where the bud is that would be my top tip and then put them in a lovely vase with some water If you don't have roses in your garden already, I'd recommend getting one simply because, particularly if it's a repeat flowerer, like a Floribunda rose, you will get uh, joy from it really from June, quite often into November. I mean, as long as the weather's warm, they keep going. Obviously, they have the height of their interest in the summer months, but you get good value from them. And there's so much variety out there that even if you think you don't like roses, I'm sure there's one for you somewhere. I love a yellow rose and there's some lovely yellow roses in the garden at Wisley. Graham Thomas, for example, a new English rose in Mountbatten, the Floribunda. The glory of the Wisley Rose Garden is it's mixed in with compatible shrubs and herbaceous flowers. In late summer, it's a glorious sight. Now, we pay a lot of attention to the luscious flowers and scent of roses, but there's more to a rose than meets the eye. As art historian and author of By Any Other Name, A Cultural History of the Rose, Simon Morley explains. I grew up with roses without even really noticing that they were there. I grew up with roses like perhaps every person in England grows up with roses. They're just part of 
the landscape we live in. They're in everybody's gardens, they're in parks. I never really noticed them, however, until I was fairly old. I had an epiphany. I was living in East London at the time, and I was feeling a bit miserable. It was November, and I sort of, for the first time, noticed that there were roses blooming in many of the gardens of the houses I passed. And seeing them there cheered me up no end. It was like a kind of visitation somehow. From that moment on, I couldn't really stop thinking about roses and wanting to know more about roses, about the history of roses, but also, of course, trying to grow them myself. They became domesticated over a long, long period of time. It's a very rich history. I guess the story begins, at least for Europe, in the Middle East, where thousands of years ago, the first roses were taken in hand by humans and propagated in order to produce not just pretty things to look at, by the way, that's something that comes later. They were propagated as a cash crop because people had worked out how to create rose water, which was a, a useful way to mask the various maliferous odors that surround human beings, but also had useful as a, an ingredient in cooking. They were also used as garlands to be worn in the hair. They had various uses that meant that they were something that humans wanted to develop, improve, and to live with in one way or another. So one of the things that's most fascinating about the rose is that it's a very human plant, by which I mean it's very, very intertwined with the development of human society. The short answer to the question whether the rose is English is that it's not. Like most English things, if you go back far enough in history, you find it came from somewhere else, which means that the rose is a good way of reminding ourselves that there's no such thing as a pure essence of something, that things are always emerging from something else. And it's true, of course, that the English took the rose to heart, but so did the French. Perhaps the French took the rose to heart more than the English in the early days. But both the French and the English adopted the rose thousands of years after the Greeks and the Romans, who first were the, the first Europeans to really fall in love with the rose. The first roses to be cultivated in England, domesticated in England, would have been during the period of the Roman occupation, bought there by Romans. So, of course, we think of the rose as English and we associate it, let's say, with Shakespeare. And it is part and parcel of our history, but it's also a reminder that our history is one that is incredibly mixed up with other people's histories. The rose was associated with Venus, the goddess of love, the pagan goddess of love. At first, the Catholic Church wanted to distance itself as much as possible for anything associated with paganism, which included the rose. However, gradually, the church recognized that flowers were a pretty useful part of any ceremony. And also, they could assimilate pagan traditions and convert them into Christian traditions. So the Virgin Mary became very closely associated with the rose, and she was often called the rose without thorns, 
Why? Because the thorns were associated in the Christian story with sin. And in some Catholic stories, the Garden of Eden had roses, but they were without thorns. And it was only after the fall, after Eve tempted Adam with the apple, that the rose grew thorns. I remember there was a survey done in the United Kingdom a few years ago, which was asked, what are the Brits' favourite flower? Not surprisingly, it was the rose, but also what was their least favourite flower? And it was also the rose because of the thorns. There's a huge variety of different kinds of thorns and prickles on roses. And that in itself is a, a fascinating thing to study. We spend most of our time looking at the flowers. But next time you're in a rose garden, why don't you do something very perverse and don't look at the flowers and just spend all your time looking at all the different prickles, thorns, see what happens. Thanks, Simon. As he said, the prickles and thorns on roses are something to behold at this time of year, which got me to thinking about how many other spiky plants we unfairly shun. Consider the bramble. It's very thorny, it has beautiful fruit, its flowers are magnificent for pollinators, and it supports a very great deal of wildlife, but because it ramps and wanders and comes up wherever it shouldn't do, we treat it with despite and perhaps don't give it the care and attention we could do. Author and RHS website editor Gareth Richards is in firm agreement with me. So in Britain, when we say bramble, what we mean is the blackberry or rubus fruticosus. They're one of my favourite weeds because they are nature's frontline defenders against the onslaught of man. We demolish countryside and we build buildings and then we demolish the buildings and they're part of a group of plants that paints the grey concrete green again. And I love that power that they have. If you've ever seen bramble in the summer, you know how quickly they can grow. I kind of think of them as sort of thorny vegetable warriors fighting the fight for nature. You might be surprised to find out that they're actually quite closely related to roses. If you look at the flowers, they have five petals, so which is classic rose family, rosaceae. So roses have five petals, apples have five petals, strawberries have five petals, and brambles do too. And they have that very distinctive central boss of stamens. And sometimes if you lean into a bramble flower and have a sniff, you will get a rose-like scent. Not all of them, not all the time, but have a little sniff if you see one. These are fearsomely armed plants, these vegetable warriors. They're fearsomely armed, so they're covered in backward-facing thorns. These help the plant to climb, and even the backs of the leaves have thorns on them. But this has a really important ecological role, because what they do is they shelter the small and the young things of the world. So for example, if farmland is abandoned, what happens? The brambles come out of the hedgerows, they root, they run amok over the abandoned field. And in those thickets, birds can nest, young saplings can grow. And there's an old saying, which is thorn is the mother of the oak, because by protecting the oak seedlings from deer and other browsing animals, actually they allow woodlands to form and that's a really important part of ecological succession. Now, brambles themselves are quite a tangled group of plants. 
we call it Rubus fruticosus aggregate. And what that means, it's an aggregate species. It's made of 300 micro species. Well, what does that mean? Well, when you go bramble picking, you'll notice that every single plant is slightly different. Some will have delicious fruit, some will have kind of sour fruit. The fruits will be slightly different colors and sizes. The leaves will look different. And they're actually one of the reasons why no one can really decide quite how many native plants we have. Dandelions do it too, and it's called an aggregate species. That variability is quite useful actually, because over time people have selected different blackberries for different uses. So there are some really, really good cultivated ones. If you don't have access to the countryside, or even if you do, maybe grow some of the cultivated ones because they are delicious. There's one called Caraca Black, which has fruit more than an inch long sometimes. They're huge. And you think, oh, it's not gonna taste of anything, but it doesn't, it's wonderful. It tastes almost like lychees and tropical fruits, it's beautiful. And you've got thornless ones as well. So if you've got a small garden, maybe think about a thornless one, grow it up a fence, grow it up an obelisk. They're really, really good garden plants. Really tough, take a bit of shade, give you a good crop. And they're healthy too. So blackberries are full of fiber, vitamin C, vitamin K, all kinds of phytochemicals which have been shown to have health giving properties. So they're well worth growing or seeking out in the countryside. I think if you've got space to leave a bramble patch, brilliant, but don't feel that you have to have a bramble patch. Like don't feel you have to have a nettle patch to have a wildlife friendly garden because the countryside is full of brambles and nettles and there are more human friendly, wildlife friendly plants that you can grow. But if brambles are growing really well in your garden, maybe root them out, but then grow a cultivated blackberry and you'll get, that way you'll get guaranteed delicious crops. And if you want to grow a thornless one as well, if you've got a small garden and you have to walk quite close to it, yeah, maybe think about a thornless variety as well. Gareth's book, RHS Weeds, The Beauty and Use of 50 Vagabond Plants, can be ordered from the RHS shop now. Gareth's passionate defence of weeds has me thinking. There's beauty all around us, but you often find it in areas you might not expect. Take wasps. And bear with me for a moment. I'm not talking about the pesky ones that can invade a summer barbecue, but the amazing group known as parasitoid wasps. These creatures often infest the insects that would otherwise destroy your plants. To learn more about them, I'm joined by Magdalena Boshoff from the plant health team at the RHS. What about these parasitoid wasps? Tell us a bit about them. How do they differ from the normal stripy varmints that we find in the garden? Okay, so... Parasitoid wasps, they are small and solitary, so they live alone. And most of the time, we are not even aware of their presence. They do not sting, and instead of having a sting, this is replaced by a prominent egg-laying organ called the ovipositor. And instead of being a predator ferociously hunting on a wide diversity of insects and spiders, it is actually very host-specific and also specific to a life stage, one life stage of a specific organism. And what they do, they lay their eggs on top of or inside a host insect's body. And this body cavity is then a type of incubator or a food source that she uses to rear her young. And slowly, the larvae inside this host insect will start feeding on the non-essential tissues, killing the host insect from the inside out while she's still alive. So it's a quite a gruesome affair. 
And once they've been in, in, infested, infected, or whatever one should call it, parasitized or parasitoidized, I don't know, do they carry on as normal or do they behave differently? So the host insects have different ways to just work around being infected. They have an immune response where they would reject the eggs of a parasitoid wasp. They would drop off a plant and hide. But the ovipositor or the egg-laying organ also injects chemicals that alter the behavior of the host insect. So some of them will actually be kind of zombified and they would react in a way that is to the advantage of the parasitoid wasp larvae. I think it's also important to define what is a parasite and what is a parasitoid. That would be interesting because I'm not sure myself. It's quite a difficult word to pronounce and a bit strange. So a parasite feeds on a host, but this feeding rarely results in the host dying, while a parasitoid feeds on a host and it always results in the death of the host insect. So we've got these um, very numerous microscopic wasps as gardeners. Should we care? Yes, because they naturally limit populations of insects that gardeners normally see as pests. And the adults feeds on sugary substances. So in nature, that would normally be honeydew produced by aphids or, or other sap-sucking insects or nectar. And while looking for nectar, they by accident also pollinate. So they're good pollinators. They can also be commercially produced and used as biocontrol agents. I've used these wasps. I've bought them for use at Wisley and they've been very effective. I've used one called Encasia to control the white fly in the vegetables in the greenhouse and I've used one called Aphidius. It is an astonishing beast. It, um, it managed to wipe out populations of aphids that were resistant to insecticides. So um, yeah, it's, it all is becoming clear now. Yes, so Incarcia formosa was linked to Wisley because they were the first to trial this parasitoid wasps within a glasshouse environment, and it targets the whitefly nymphs. And the problem with glasshouse whitefly is that it builds up pesticide resistance, as you said. So using a parasitoid wasp, this would obviously not happen. So it has that advantage. And also, you can use it for pests that do not react well to pesticides. Woolly aphid, it is notoriously difficult to control, while you do find Aphelinius marley, and it can control the aphid population, the woolly aphid population, on apple trees and crab apples or um, cotoniaster. Of all these wasps, are there any that are particularly unusual or interesting? I mean, they're all unusual, interesting from most people's point of view, but are there any that stand out in your mind that we find in the UK? Yeah, I, I think... Cortesia glomerata, which is a species, a parasitoid species that lay their eggs in the caterpillars of large cabbage white butterflies. And this is quite an interesting one because we do receive inquiries about it through the gardening advice service. So it's something that allotmenteers or gardeners could actually look for in their own garden. So what it does, the caterpillar starts feeding on the plant tissue and it releases insect-induced volatiles. And this is a kind of a chemical cue that the parasitoid wasp picks up with its long antennae. And then she knows exactly where to go. And when she arrives and there are a lot of caterpillars feeding, she would choose the one that has the right age and is nice and healthy. And she would quickly and quite aggressively puncture 
the epidermis of the caterpillar and eject about 50 eggs at a time into her body cavity. The caterpillar would continue feeding as if nothing happened, but inside her, the larvae will, of the parasitoid wasp will hatch from the eggs and start feeding on her non-essential tissues and avoiding any vital organs so that she stays along long enough to sustain them. And when they've stopped feeding, they will use their very strong mandibles to chew through her skin and wriggle out of her body, start spinning a cluster of cocoons, and half zombified, half dead, this caterpillar would actually protect this cluster of cocoons, protect it from any birds or other predators. Then the male parasitoid wasps will hatch. They will stay and wait until the females hatch, um, mate, and the female will go ahead and look for another host insect. I've seen these on my allotment, and um, the ones I've seen are quite big, and they yes. wander around the garden, and then eventually they die in all sorts of places, and they're covered in these little yellow cocoons, and it's a fascinating piece of natural history in your own garden. Yes, and I think, so if you do not have that caterpillars or just a certain level of damage, you will not attract parasitoid wasps into your garden. So there needs to be a little bit of damage and there needs to be insect populations there that maybe some people see as pests. So um, having said all this, do you think we're going to change the minds of people? Because people don't like wasps. I like wasps, except when they sting me. But people tend not to like wasps. Do you think we're going to be able to change their mind and get them to at least accept wasps, if not exactly embrace them? From the total number of wasps, such a small proportion are common social wasps and the ones that annoy people. But besides that, common wasps, they are ferocious hunters and together with parasitoid wasps, they lower insect populations that gardeners see as pests. And they're also pollinators. So even though we might be uncomfortable when the social species are around that can actually sting, we should still tolerate their presence because they are amazing and I do not know what we would do without wasps. Well, I think you've given us the most interesting account of something that many people will hardly know exists. And even I, who know they exist, have learned an awful lot from you. So that's really kind. And thank you so much. Thank you, Guy. Well, on that note, we come to the end of this week's show. And now I'm going to continue my own parasitic relationship with the garden and chomp on some lovely cauliflowers that are heading beautifully now. They look ready for gobbling. For more on anything discussed, you can head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. All that's left to say is goodbye from me, Guy Barter. Let's all appreciate the beauty in everything. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. 
and the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the Rhydon, and I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.